0: Parsha's Toldos has 106 verses spread out over three chapters. At the end of last week's Parsha, Abraham passed away. The storyline is now going to revolve around Abraham's son Isaac, but more centralized around the story of Isaac's children, the twin boys born at the beginning of this week's Parsha, the two brothers that couldn't possibly be more different, Jacob and Esau. And one of the things we're going to see in this week's Parsha and its portrayal about Isaac is that the Torah doesn't really treat Isaac the way you would expect. You know, Abraham got a whole robust storyline. We're told all his amazing acts of kindness. The Torah praises him, lauds his greatness. Jacob's going to be a central character throughout the rest of Genesis. We're going to hear many details about him and about his family and his conflicts that he's going to have to encounter. Isaac's story is somewhat unusual that we don't really get a lot of detail, a lot of color about his characteristics, about his character traits, about his interactions that he's had. And, you know, even the episode of the Binding of Isaac, it's called the episode of the Binding of Isaac, but the way it's portrayed, the way it's positioned by the Torah is it's really a test about Abraham. And that storyline, that unique treatment of Isaac is gonna continue throughout this parsha where the Torah is gonna to be a little bit hands off-ish with how it relates them as we will see. The parsha begins with telling us the lineage of, of Isaac. He's the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. So it's a little bit of repetition that Isaac is the son of Abraham and Abraham is the father of Isaac. So Rashi explains something interesting. We know Sarah was barren for many, many years. Isaac was only born to Sarah after she was 90 years old and Abraham was 100. And Abraham and Sarah were married for a long time before Isaac was born. But right before Isaac was born, Sarah was kidnapped and was held in the house of Abimelech overnight. And there were people, the scoffers of the generation, tells us Rashi. The scoffers of the generation, they used to say that, you know who Isaac's real father is? It's not Abraham, it's Avimelech. After all, Sarah was with Abraham for so long, and she wasn't, she didn't become pregnant. And then she spends one night with Avimelech, and Isaac is born. And therefore, says Rashi, what happened, the Almighty made Isaac's visage, his countenance, identical to Abraham. They were two peas in a pod. Abraham and Isaac looked the same. They resembled each other very strongly. And therefore, the Torah kind of hints at that. Isaac was the son of Abraham, and Abraham begot Isaac, and that was universally accepted. No one could deny it. If you see Abraham, you see Isaac, it's quite clear that Abraham is the father of Isaac. And this is kind of an interesting idea here. According to Rashi, we see some godly intervention. There were scoffers, people who would kind of try to throw a monkey wrench into the whole miracle of Sarah having a baby at the age of 90, Abraham being 100. They would say, "Now this is no miracle. This is just, there's someone else. There's some other factor to this story. And we see here the Almighty intervening, silencing the critics and making it clear to all that this was indeed a miracle. In fact, there is a, an ancient Jewish axiom that one late sanus, one scoffer, one cynic is able to cast away the impact of a hundred reprimandations. The cynics are people that are very harmful because once they kind of cast aspersions into the narrative of the righteous, it's very hard to get the onlookers to be inspired. So Isaac is the son of Abraham, and when he was 40, he marries Rebekah. Rebekah is the daughter of Bethuel, the the Aramean from Padanaram, the sister of Lavan, and that's who Isaac married. And of course, the second verse of our Parsha also seems somewhat redundant. After all, the vast majority of last week's Parsha was dedicated to how Eliezer found a wife for Isaac. That was Rebekah. We learned about her brother Laban, her father Bethuel, where she was from it doesn't seem really necessary to, for that information that character information to be repeated in the beginning of this week's parsha so again rashi helps us with that question and he tells us why is why do we need to be told the identity of rebecca's father brother and hometown to share with us her praise even though her father was wicked her brother was wicked The people that she admired, or maybe she ought to have admired in her life, the influences that she had, they were wicked. Her townsmen, the people that she came from, a place of wickedness, still she was righteous. She did not learn from their ways. The way most people have their identities, their perspectives, their values form is from the people around them. In fact, even today in America, most people live pretty close to where they grew up and they don't diverge from their parents and from society very much. There's a certain kind of limitations, parameters of how much ordinary people change over the course of their lives from where they began. And here we see Rebecca. She's going to be the mother of the Jewish people, essentially. And she's a little bit like Abraham. She's a maverick. She grows up with people who are idolaters, who are pagans, who are wicked Yet, she has the intestinal fortitude, the independent resolve to chart her own path of righteousness in her life. She was independent, even though she was submerged in a wicked pagan world that embraced all manners of sin and all sorts of morally questionable behavior. She was able to overcome that. And therefore, we're reminded, look where she came from and look what she became and they're married and the rosy relationship hits a speed bump why because rebecca is infertile like sarah before her she is barren so what do jews do when there is infertility well they pray so isaac starts praying to the almighty and rebecca starts praying to the almighty and verse uh, the third verse of the parsha verse 21 the Almighty allowed himself to be entreated by him and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. So here we see something interesting. You know, today, thankfully, they have all kinds of treatments, in vitro fertilization, all these amazing medical developments of dealing with the problem that really exists in a lot of couples, a lot of families in the world that there is infer- infertility. And here we see Another angle, or like a spiritual angle, to what ostensibly is a medical problem, we see that at least Abraham and and Isaac and Rebecca and people of the Bible, people of the Torah, they view it in kind of the spiritual realm, and they say, okay, you know, if someone has a baby, where's that come from? Also comes from God. So therefore, if someone does not is, is infertile, is not able to have children. Well, then that comes from the Almighty as well. And therefore, well, what's the solution? The solution is to pray. And this is kind of like a high-level thing that we see in many instances in in Jewish literature. For example, the Talmud even suggests that maybe people shouldn't even go to the doctor. You're sick. Well, why are you sick? Who made you sick? The Almighty made made you sick on kind of the high level level. And therefore, well, figure out what sin you, you, you've you been doing, figure out what message the Almighty is trying to send you, fits the underlying problem, and then the symptom will go away. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that we should just study Torah and pray and let God worry about everything. But my point is just that this existed and this was present and uh, maybe even prevalent in times of yore where people had a greater sensitivity to matters of of, of the spiritual and therefore they focused exclusively on the spiritual components of bad things happening to them or challenges happening to them, and that's how they addressed it. Perhaps today, if we have medical issues, things like that, of course we shouldn't ignore the more practical, pragmatic approach of trying to go visit doctors, things like that. We do that, but we also try to add with it a recognition that ultimately it's the Almighty who makes people healthy, and who makes people sick. The Almighty is the one, of course, who allows people to have children, not ignore that basic fact of our faith. Now, it's interesting, in this verse, she does become pregnant, but Rashi picks up on this. The Almighty allowed himself to be entreated by him. Says Rashi, the Almighty listened to his prayer, but not to her prayer. Why? Why? Because it is incomparable the prayer of a righteous person, the son of a wicked person, versus the prayer of a righteous person, the son of a righteous person. Both Isaac and Rebecca were righteous. However, they differed in their pedigree. Isaac was righteous, the son of righteous. His parents were also righteous. Whereas Rebecca, she was righteous. But she was different because her family. She was the child of someone who was wicked, and therefore, says Rashi, the reason why God listened to Isaac's prayer, not to Rebecca's prayer, is because his prayer was more efficacious because his father was righteous. And this is somewhat surprising because maybe we could have argued the opposite. After all, Isaac was just copying his father. His father was righteous. He's righteous. His mother was righteous. He's righteous. Rebecca. In fact, Rashi earlier just told us her praise that even though her family or background were all wicked, she became righteous, maybe her prayer should be even greater. You'd think the opposite would be true, quite to the contrary. Maybe the prayer of someone who's righteous is the son of wicked person, that prayer should be even more powerful. Yet here we see that the prayer of Isaac outweighed, was more effective than the prayer of Rebecca. So there's a few answers to this question. I want to share the answer that I heard from my grandfather. And he said something very powerful. He said prayer at its root, at its core, prayer is a tacit acknowledgement of a person's own feebleness, a person's own vulnerability, a person's own lack of ability to affect and to effectuate results. We're coming to God and we say, listen, we don't have the ability. We're helpless. Only you have the power to do it. You have all the power. You're omnipotent. You're the one who has the ability to affect the results that we want. That's what prayer is. Prayer is about man humbling himself or herself before God. That's what prayer is. And therefore, maybe normally in other areas, when someone comes From the rad to richest background, someone whose family is wicked and they become righteous. Maybe they're better in other areas, but with prayer specifically, the prayer of someone who's righteous, the the son of someone who's righteous, that prayer is more effective. Why? Because to pray effectively, you have to be humble. Which one of those people has it easier to be humble? Abraham. He was a celebrity. He was a mover and shaker. He was rich. He had everything. Isaac grew up in a privileged background, both materially and spiritually. If anyone had a reason to be prideful, if anyone had a difficulty to become humble, well, that would be Isaac. And therefore, when he prays properly, when he achieves the peak humility of prayer, that's much harder for him to do than Rebecca. Rebecca, after all, she has kind of a little bit of a dubious background. Someone like that, humility is more natural. Therefore, Isaac had to work harder to pray. Well, therefore, his prayer is more powerful. They both prayed maybe on the same level, but specifically with prayer. His prayer was harder for him to earn, and therefore it is more potent. So she becomes pregnant. And verse 22, we read that the children, they start fighting within her. And she's very disturbed. She's having a very difficult pregnancy. And she's wondering, if so, why am I thus? Why did I pray so hard to become pregnant if my pregnancy is going to be so miserable? So she goes to visit the prophet and the prophet tells her there's two babies in your room, but not just two babies. Two nations are represented by the two children in your womb. Two regimes from your inside shall be separated. The might shall pass from one regime to the other and the elder shall serve the younger. So this is kind of interesting. You know, the Torah is not telling us about the mourning sickness of Rebecca, the difficulty that she had in pregnancy for no reason. There's obviously something important being conveyed here. So Rashi says something very fascinating. Rashi gives several explanations. Both of them seem to kind of expand the subject way beyond just the usual gestational difficulties uh, of, of pregnancy. The first interpretation Rashi tells us is that Rebecca, whenever she would walk near a house of scholarship, near a house of Torah, then Jacob, one of the children inside of her, would start stirring and struggling to be born. He wanted to exit. He wanted to go join the house of scholarship. And when she would pass the house of idolatry, well then his twin brother, Esau, he would awaken and he would try to struggle to come out. That's her problem. problem was not that she was having difficulty, the kids were kicking around being a little violent. The problem was is that this child, or at least the child that she thought she had, seemed to be so conflicted. It, it wasn't set kind of what path he's going to undertake. And she was bothered. She went to the prophet. According to the second interpretation of Rashi, the struggle was not limited to the confines of the uterus, rather, Jacob and Esau were struggling and wrestling with the heritage, with the inheritance of two worlds. This was not a simple intrauterine struggle. This was Jacob coming with Olam Ababa, with the spiritual world, Esau coming with Olam Aze, with this world, and there were two worlds clashing within her. These two opposites, These like two sides of a magnet repelling each other and not being able to resolve their differences and live peaceably with each other within her. So what does she do? She goes to the prophet and the prophet tells her, well, the reason why there's so much confusion, the reason why there's so much conflict is because there isn't one child there. There's two children. One of them is going to be very righteous and one of them is going to be sort of wicked. And these two will be opposites. When one rises, the other will fall. And the elder shall serve the younger. And it's interesting here. And This is an idea that's been suggested in this verse. Initially, she thought she had only one child. And therefore, according to the first interpretation of Rashi, she was worried that this child was not settled. The child seemed to have contradictory impulses. And then the prophet tells her that, well, there's two babies. And each one independently is desirous of different worlds. And Rebecca, well, she's assuaged. Because it's better to have one righteous child and one wicked child than only one child who's conflicted. Because when someone's righteous, well, that's a good thing. When someone's wicked and they know they're wicked, you know what? They could still be helped. They could still be saved. There's still hope for them. Whereas if someone is a mishmash. If someone is a total, just oxymoronic behavior, conflicting behavior, just one day trying this, one day trying that, never settling, they don't really have a bright future uh, awaiting them. So her term is completed and behold, there's twins. And the first one's born and he's all red and he's very hairy and they name him Esau. And after that, his brother emerged And his hand is grasping on the akev, on the heel of Esau. And his name is Jacob Yaakov. And Isaac is 60 years old when she bore them. So there's a 20-year gap from the marriage when Isaac was 40. Now Isaac is 60 when his two twin boys are born. So we're told, again, more details that seem to be trivial. Esau is a redhead. He's hairy. They call him Esau. Jacob is born and his hand is clutching the heel of Esau. These little tidbits of information are cute for the family, but the Torah obviously believes that there's some lasting value for us to know somewhat of the birth narrative of Jacob and Esau. So Rashi opens up this whole subject by starting off with a very shocking statement. Esau was born a redhead. Says Rashi, five words. This is a sign that he will be a murderer. And this is just an interesting idea that we see that in the physical realm, someone's hair color, at least in this instance, it seems to have roots in the spiritual world. And therefore, even though Isaac, even though Esau is just being born, there's this color scheme that he has that the Torah already sees as indications portending to him being a murderer. In fact, in uh, throughout the, the rest of the Bible, we see this episode appear or this kind of theme appear again. Samuel, when he meets David and he eventually is going to anoint him as the king of Israel, he's very disturbed. Because he sees that David too is a redhead and he's worried that maybe this is Esau incarnate. This is another version of the murderous Esau. Maybe this is not the good candidate for for the king of the Jewish people. Ultimately, he is comforted when he sees that David's eyes are fair and the way he Interpreted the way Samuel the prophet interpreted that is that David, even though he will have a murderous tendencies, it will be done with the eyes, with the visionaries of the Jewish people guiding him in the proper way of utilizing, so to speak, his innate murderous character. But this is something we see you know, in the physical world and we see it in the spiritual world, you know, like if, you, if the bull goes crazy if you if it sees red. There's something about that color that triggers something very violent. Uh, in addition, on Yom Kippur, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, only wears white when he walks into the Holy of Holies. And there's some sort of symbolism that is already being demonstrated uh, that Esau is red, he's very hairy, he's very mature, uh, the, the Kabbalists talk about hair as, you know, if, if someone's very hairy, it gets very dirty. All the schmutz, all the dust gets caught up in the hair. Just so too, they explain Esau, all the sins are going to ca- get caught up in him. Whereas Jacob, well, he's seizing Esau's ankle. And this is, so to speak, representative, Rashi tells us, of Jewish and world history. You know, Esau's got the head start. And at the very last moment, Jacob is going to reach out and, so to speak, grab his ankle and ultimately triumph. At the last second, he's going to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. So, again, there's this idea here that the birth of these individuals, because they are not just individuals with their own lives, but they're representatives of big ideas, in fact, in Jewish tradition, Esau, Is going to, his descendants and his force, his spiritual force is going to be manifested in Rome and eventually in the Christian world. And of course, Jacob is the forbearer of the Jewish world, of the Jewish people. And therefore, all those cosmic conflicts that are going to be the history of the world, much of the world, for thousands of years, all those things are already being represented at the very earliest parts of the life of Jacob and and Esau. And verse 27, we read, The lads grew up, and Esau became one who knows trapping, a man of the field. But Jacob was a wholesome man. He was an honest man. He was abiding in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he would feed him game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. We read about them as newborns, and then the very next verse, we read about them, and they have grown up. Rashi tells us that they are 13, and when they're 13, they went on their divergent paths. When they were children, their character wasn't apparent to all. You couldn't really tell the difference between Jacob and Esau. Once they became 13, Jacob went one path. Esau went the other path. Jacob went to the tent to go study. Esau went to the fields to trap. And here we see another, so to speak, veiled criticism of Isaac, that Isaac loved Esau because Esau would feed him meat. And this, of course, is it's very difficult to read because, after all, Isaac is one of the forefathers, and we read the rest of the story, Esau is one of the villains of the story. And here the Torah tells us that Esau was beloved in the eyes of Isaac because he would make him Steak. This seems a little bit out of character for one of the forefathers to be told that they love Steak so much, and that's why they loved one child over the other child. But one of the ways to kind of understand how Isaac is being treated in the Torah is that Isaac had a personal quality known as din, meaning judgment. And the way it's presented by the Kabbalists is that Abraham, he represented kindness. He was kind to everyone. Maybe a bit too kind. Isaac, well, he was the other extreme. He was judgment. And maybe a little bit too harsh. He was like an overcorrection for Abraham's kindness is Isaac's judgment. And then you have Jacob who's going to be the perfect hybrid, the perfect blend of Abraham and Isaac, not too much in one direction, not too much Abrahamic kindness, and not too much Isaac judgment. But because Isaac represents judgment, which is a very harsh, very strict, very rigid treatment, therefore the Torah treats him with judgment, very strict, very exacting, and therefore It was able to find some flaw in Isaac's character, something that related to him enjoying the meat provided by his son, and that's how it presents him. It it takes the small flaws, amplifies them a million times, their true size, and presents that. That's indeed the way of judgment of Isaac, and that's the way the Torah treats him. And a little bit later, verse 29, we read that Jacob is making a stew. Isaac, the man of the field, after all, comes in from the field. He's exhausted. He tells Jacob, okay, give me some of that very red stuff, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name is Edom. Edom is the word for red. Here we see Jacob and Esau about to engage in the first conflict. Esau is is exhausted. Rashi says he's exhausted because he's exhausted from sin. Jacob is making a stew. Again, Rashi tells us that the reason why he's making this meal is because Abraham had just died. And as we know, the Torah is not necessarily written out in chronological order. And Jacob and Isaac were born before Abraham died, even though Abraham died in last week's Parsha and Jacob and Isaac were only born in this week's Parsha. So Jacob is making the meal for the comforting and bereavement of Isaac and Esau shows up, and Esau says, I want to eat that. Give me some of that very red stuff. And Jacob says, sure, I'll give that to you, but you have to sell to me your firstborn birthright. And Esau says, meh, what do I need it? I'm going to die anyhow. What use is the birthright? He swears to that effect, and indeed, he sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, and he drank, and he got up, and he left. And he spurned the birthright. This will go down as one of the most lopsided transactions in world history. For the price of a bowl of soup, Jacob was able to purchase everything that came with being born first with the birthright of Esau. So there's a few things to point out over here. You know, if you had to describe a food, you know, you would say, well, it's very healthy, it's very filling, maybe it's even tasty. Maybe if you're a little bit creative, you talk about the texture, what it makes you feel. Here we see Esau, he asks Jacob, pour into me now some of that very red stuff, for I am exhausted. The way he describes the food, give me some of that red stuff. And this is sort of like an interesting little detail here about, about Esau, is that he's using seemingly the most trivial, the most superficial element of the food to describe it. He's saying, give me the red stuff. How does it look? That's all I hear about. And maybe this is a Somewhat of a, of an inkling into his character that he's going to be very superficial. He's not going to get deep into the essence of anything. He's going to be worried about how something looks. If it looks great, if they want it. If he doesn't look great, if it's not red, if it's not shiny, if it doesn't have pizzazz, he's maybe not interested. That's the first thing we see. And the next thing we see is that Esau justifies this transaction. He says, listen, what do I need it? I'm going to die. So of what use to me is a birthright. So Rashi explains that there was a dialogue. Esau said, well, what do I have with the birthright? Jacob responded, well, you get to do work in the temple. The firstborn is going to be the high priest and get to work in the temple. And then there's all these responsibilities and all these spiritual benefits that you have. So Esau tells him, well, why don't you detail some of those things? So Jacob starts detailing. Well. If you drink alcohol and go into the temple, you die. Well, if you're not wearing a head cover, you die. All these important laws needed to be followed to a T in the temple. And Issa responds, well, if I had those responsibilities, I'm going to die. I don't want that. You take it. That's how Rashi explains, look, I am going to die. So of what use to me is a birthright? But I think it does kind of more broadly speaking. It is kind of interesting, you know, when someone is made to know of their pending demise, if someone knows they're going to die soon, it's kind of an interesting question. Is that going to be a spiritual motivator or not? You know, the Talmud tells us that if someone ruminates on their own mortality, that's a tactic to embrace their spiritual self. You know, if someone remembers they're going to die, if someone knows where they came from, knows where they're going to end up, know you're going to end up in a place of dust, worms, and magnets, you realize that your life over here has a shelf life, it's not going to be forever, you're going to to go face God soon enough, well, that could really stir you to try to re-examine what you're living for and try to live for a more spiritual-centric life. And here we see that Esau, it's the opposite. When he comes to encounter his own mortality, his limited time here, then he says, okay, what do I need? The spiritual birthright. Give me the physical pleasure of the bowl of soup. Let me enjoy that. That is preferable to me, in my eyes, at this time than the birthright. And maybe we could even argue that this is a bellwether of who a person really is. You know if you ask someone, what do you do when you realize or if you were to realize that you don't have a lot you know you have a week to live or you have a month to live or you have an hour to live, what do you do if the answer is, well, I try to maximize the physical material pleasure before time expires, well, it shows that you're probably living on the more esau track of life. whereas if you say, oh no, I only have a few more a few more minutes, hours, days, months, or whatever." I better try to stockpile mitzvahs. I can only be here for a little bit longer. I better try to accomplish, accomplish as much as I can in the spiritual world before I am ushered to the spiritual world. Then it's quite likely that you're more of the Jacob variety where your focus is the spiritual world. Sometimes we forget about that. We lose sight of that. But for people like that, indeed, ruminating, remembering your own Mortality will hopefully inspire you to pursue a spiritual agenda. Chapter 26 begins with another famine. There was a famine in the times of Abraham. Now there's an additional famine. Isaac, again, has to travel. He goes to Gerar, which is the second place that Abraham went. And it seems like he was on the doorstep of going down to Egypt. God appears to him, don't go to Egypt. Dwell in the land that I shall indicate to you. Live in this land. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. For to you and your offspring will I give all these lands. The promise that was given to Abraham that he'll have the land of Israel is repeated to Isaac. And establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will increase your offspring like the stars of the heavens. And I will give your offspring all these lands. Again, all these promises that were given to Abraham and I repeated to Isaac and all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your offspring. Why? What's the justification for this blessing? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and observed my com- my safeguards, my commandments, my decrees, and my Torahs. Again, we see that all this is in the merit of Abraham. Only Abraham is worthy of praise. It's not because of Isaac. Again, we see that the Torah treats Isaac a little bit coolly with with a dose of his own judgment that he conferred upon others. And this is kind of interesting here because we're told that Abraham obeyed God's voice, observed God's safeguards, commandments, decrees, and Torahs. And Rashi explains that this really covers the entire gamut of Torah. He withstood the tests. He fulfill the mitzvos all kinds of mitzvos the ones that are more logical the ones that we have to just rely on God though don't make any sense to us like why can we eat this food not that food why can we wear wool we can wear linen we just can't wear the mixture of the two Abraham observed it all and this is kind of interesting that this an idea and again, this is echoed in the Talmud and other sources that the forefathers Abraham and Isaac and Jacob actually observed all of Torah even though the formal conveyance of Torah to the Jewish people does not happen in the entire Book of Genesis, it only happens in the Book of Exodus, after the Jewish people were in Egypt for hundreds of years, and they had the Exodus, and then at Mount Sinai, the national revelation with the conveyance of the Torah. So this is just an interesting, interesting thing. Indeed, there's been butch written on this on this subject, going through all the details and all the various permutations of this of this idea. But there's this idea that it's important to know, and we see here. Plainly, in in chapter 26, verse 5, that Abraham observed all of Torah. In fact, there's an entire essay by the Ramban, Nachmanides, on the forefathers keeping the Torah pre-Sinai. In fact, he tells us something interesting. He says that Abraham, these people were prophets. They had abilities that we can't even fathom. And he was able to deduce on his own all of Torah and all the reasons for it, and all the secrets of it, and he observed it, even though he wasn't obligated. But then he adds that they observed it only in the land of Israel. So you may ask a question, next week's Parsha, spoiler alert, Jacob is going to marry two sisters. The Torah actually, later on, Leviticus is going to ban marrying two sisters. Rabban's answer is that because they weren't actually obligated to get the Torah They only did it pro bono, and therefore they only did it in the land of Israel. So Isaac settles in Gerar. The same thing that happened to Abraham twice happens to Isaac. People are interested in the identity of his wife. He says, well, she's my sister, and she's not kidnapped, but everyone realizes that this was a ruse, and Avimelech is again upset, we almost took her. We almost kidnapped her because she's so beautiful. Don't, why do you tell us that she's your sister? And he made sure that no one would touch them. Whoever molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac is prosperous. He's reaping a hundredfold of everything that he is investing. He's been blessed by Hashem. The man became great and kept becoming greater until he was very great. Rashi says, That people would people realize there was something special about about Isaac. Everything he touched turned to gold. We'd rather have his fertilizer than Avimelech than the king's gold and silver. There's something really special about him. Uh, Isaac digs wells. The wells are stuffed up by some other ruffians. He redigs the wells uh, and he signs a treaty with Avimelech that there's going to be no aggression between those two and they celebrate that with a feast. So there's a very long narrative here about Isaac and his interactions with these various wells. Uh, Just quickly, the Ramban tells us that there's three specific wells that are named. Uh, There's one well which is stuffed up. It's called Asek. There's a second well which is also stuffed up. and That's called Sitna. And there's a third well called Rehovot and that one was not touched. So the Ramban, of course, is trying to figure out what is the significance of these wells? You know, who cares? Well, why is this relevant to us for eternity? And he tells us that, well, these wells are not just wells, but they are foreshadowing the three temples. Of course, Solomon built the first temple. It was destroyed. Isaac dug the first well. It was stuffed up. Ezra, together with uh, a collaboration of other people, built the second temple, and it too was destroyed by the Romans. Well, the second well of Isaac was also stuffed up. But he built the third well, Rehovot, and that is symbolic of the third temple, and that one was one that there was no quarreling over. The Almighty appears to him again and says to him, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you. I will increase your offspring. Because of Abraham, my servant, for a third time, we see Isaac is not given any of his own praise. It's all because of Abraham. His identity is inextricably wrapped up in Abraham's. Isaac builds an altar, and invokes Hashem by name, pitches his tent, and there... Isaac's servants dug another well. The chapter ends with Esau, at the age of 40, marrying a woman, Judith, the daughter of Beirah the Hittite, and Basmas, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a source of spiritual rebellion to Isaac and Rebekah. Rashi curates for us some of the criticism that we see from our sages on Esau by telling us, that Esau is like a pig. Why? Because later on in the Torah, we're going to see that there's two signs for a kosher animal. It's got to have split hooves and reach to its cud. If you look at how a pig sits, says the Talmud, it sticks out its two front hooves to show you, look, I am kosher, as if it's kosher. Well, really, it's not kosher. So a pig is something which displays deceptively it's kosher characteristics while hiding the fact that it really isn't kosher. Similarly here, we're told about Esau that he's 40 years old and he marries two women. Well, who else was 40 when they got married? At the beginning of the partial we read that Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. And that was the rationale for Esau to get married again. Well, he says he said, listen, when my father was 40, he got married. I, too, will do the same. In his head, he's exactly like his father, Isaac. Again, we see more superficiality. Of course, there's a tremendous gulf separating Isaac and Esau, but in Esau's mind, I'm the same, and therefore how many, I'm going to demonstrate it by getting married at the age of 40. My father got married at the age of forty too. Of course, there's so much more to life and to holiness and to spirituality than the age when someone gets married. That's maybe the most insignificant part of life. What age someone is when they get married, or maybe it's not the most insignificant, but it's it's a highly insignificant matter. And and Esau makes it central. Chapter twenty-seven is going to tell about a grand heist orchestrated by Rebecca wherein Jacob is going to steal the blessing, usurp the blessings that Isaac had intended to give to his son Esau. And it came to pass, when Isaac became old, his eyes dimmed from seeing, Isaac became became blind, and he summoned Esau, his elder son, and said to him, My son! And he said to him, Here I am. And he said, See now, I have aged. I do not know the day of my death. I'm getting old. Rashi tells us he was 123 years old. He's within five years of the death of his mother. His mother died at 127. He says, well, it's maybe my time. So he tells Esau, now sharpen, if you please your deer, your sword and your bow, go out to the field, hunt game for me, make me delicacies as I love, bring them to me. I will eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. Abraham had amazing blessings. He gave them pointedly, specifically, to Isaac and not to the rest of his sons. Seemingly, Isaac is about to do the same with his blessings before he dies, and he seems to want to give the blessings to Esau. But first, he wants to eat the delicacies. And we're already told at the beginning that his eyes are dim. He's blind. Why is he blind? Rashi gives us three reasons. Very interesting. The first one is that it connects to the last event of the previous chapter. The last event of the previous chapter is that Esau married these two women and they were a source of spiritual rebellion to Isaac and Rebecca. Why? They did idolatry in their home. They would offer incense to their idols in the home of Isaac and Rebecca. And what happened to Isaac's eyes? His eyes couldn't bear the smoke of idolatry and they went blind. That's the first explanation of why Isaac came blind. The second explanation is that when Isaac, and the episode of the Binding of Isaac two weeks ago, he was on the altar and his father wanted to slaughter him. At that time, the heavens opened and the angels saw what was happening and the angels were crying. And the teardrops of the angels fell and hit Isaac in his eyes and therefore his eyes became blind. The third interpretation of why Isaac became blind is so that Jacob will be able to usurp the blessing. As we will see, Jacob will have to resort to some sort of trickery in order to steal the blessings. And therefore, that was needed, so therefore, the Almighty orchestrated that he became blind. So it is kind of interesting. According to the first explanation, it's like a twist of irony. Esau himself... By marrying these idolatrous women, created the conditions for him to lose the blessing because he brought those women in the house and they caused, indirectly, Isaac to go blind. According to the final interpretation of Rashi, that Isaac became blind because God wanted Jacob to steal the blessings, we see direct divine intervention for the deception that will transpire. And I think maybe the most interesting explanation is the middle one, where when Isaac was tied up on the altar, he saw the angels crying. It's a very strange imagery here that Rashi is telling us is the source of Isaac's blindness. And I don't know the details. What does this mean? You know, angels, they don't have tear ducts. What's going on? But clearly what it's telling us is that there was a certain touchpoint between the physical world, the world that we live in, and the spiritual world, the world of the angels, at the time of this episode. And there was some sort of interaction where Isaac absorbed something with physical tools that really he wasn't able to handle, just like the Talmud makes frequent comparisons between the spiritual world and the sun. You know, even though we have a sun in our world, if you try to look at it, you can't really do it. It's beyond, so to speak, what we could absorb. And therefore, during the episode of the Abani of Isaac, there was something that Isaac experienced that was too much for him and impaired his vision. So just an interesting introduction to this story. He tells Esau, go capture an animal and make me a steak, and I'm going to give you a blessing. Why does he have to have food before offering a blessing? So the Ramban tells us something interesting. The Ramban says is that this is no ordinary blessing. This blessing has to be conveyed prophetically. And the explanation for this is that for someone to give a regular blessing, we don't even know how valuable that is, right? I'm giving a blessing. How efficacious is that? However. There is this higher level of blessing, a spiritual blessing, a blessing which is done through prophecy, which is guaranteed to work. So whatever Isaac is about to bless, it's for sure going to happen. However, in order to become a prophet, you have to kind of allow your soul to soar to great spiritual heights. It has to kind of go up to the spiritual world and you have something that's, Holding you down, that's weighing you down. You got this body that's totally foreign in the spiritual world. It doesn't, it wants to stay here. So you have this tension. The body's pulling someone down, the soul's pulling someone up. And in order for someone to actually get there to the top of the mountain, you have to find some way to bring the body on board, to cajole and woo the body to join. And therefore, what isaac did here to achieve a level of prophecy was to make a stake and say okay we're about to have prophecy and when we have prophecy we have stake who's interested and the soul says prophecy of course i'm interested the body says stake of course i'm interested and therefore there's less tension there's less resistance from the body he threw a bone so to speak to the body to get it on board to allow him to ascend to great spiritual prophetic heights Meanwhile, Rebecca overhears what's happening. She hears Isaac telling Esau to go to the field, and she realizes that there's something that's about to happen that she's very, very worried about. And she doesn't want Isaac to give the blessing to Esau. Instead, she wants Isaac to give the blessing to Jacob. So she comes up with a scheme. She says, okay, we're going to go get some animals, and we're going to make a stake of our own. Remember, your father's blind, right? I want you to get dressed up as Esau, and I'm going to make your dad a steak, and you're going to get the blessings instead. You're going to masquerade as Esau, and you'll be able to acquire the blessings that your father intends to give to him. And Jacob responds, but my brother Esau is a hairy man. And I'm a smooth skin man. Maybe my father will feel me and he'll give me a curse instead of a blessing. So his mother reassured him, no, don't worry. If your father curses, I will absorb the curse. Listen to me. It's very important. Go get the animals. And we're going to make the stake for Isaac. Rebecca then takes Esau's garments. She clothes Jacob in Esau's clothing, the distinct hunter clothing that was entrusted to her. She covers the smooth skin with something that Esau would wear. She gives him the steak and she says, go to Isaac, go get the blessing. So it's kind of interesting here. there's a disagreement between Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac wants to give a blessing to Esau. Rebecca recognizes that it really has to go to Jacob. So the Sepharna, one of the commentaries, in the end of this chapter, he he explains something very important. He points out that if you go to the end of the Parsha, there's a second blessing that Jacob receives from Isaac. And in that blessing, Isaac makes mention of the land of Israel and the blessing of Abraham. And what he points out is that Isaac never intended to actually give Esau the blessing of Abraham. He wanted to give him a second blessing. He wanted to bifurcate, to separate the blessings, to separate the spiritual blessings, give them to Jacob. The blessing of Abraham, give to Jacob. The material blessings he wanted to give to Esau. He wanted that there should be a total split. He, of course, knew that the legacy, the destiny of Abraham was going to go to Jacob. But as a man of judgment who lived by the credo of judgment, he wanted the Jewish people to follow his model, which is living solely for the spiritual world, not even being able to garner a compliment from the Torah. That's what he wanted Jacob to live by. And therefore, he want to give all the material blessings to Esau and let Jacob suffice with the spiritual world alone. Rebecca was more pragmatic. She said, no. In order for Jacob to flourish and thrive spiritually, they can live by that harsh, rigid requirements of judgment. They have to be able to have also a little bit of material breathing room. That's needed. And that was the disagreement. It wasn't about which some really wasn't going to continue the legacy of Abraham and Isaac. Everyone knew that that was Jacob. The question is, how is Jacob going to live? Can the Jewish people, can they subsist solely on spiritual matters? That was Isaac's plan. Or is it imperative for them to achieve their spiritual aims that they have also material plenty, and that was Rebecca's philosophy. And therefore she said to Jacob, you have to go and you have to usurp the blessing, and she orchestrated this heist. So Jacob comes to his father, he says, okay, I am here, and Isaac starts investigating. Who are you, my son? So Jacob responds, Kind of like a politician. It is I, Esau, your firstborn. Which Rashi explains, it is I, I I am I. Esau is your firstborn. But you could read it, it is I, Esau, your firstborn. Meaning that he gave like an ambiguous answer, which is technically true, but it sounds misleading, it sounds like I am Esau. I have done as you told me, rise up, please sit and eat my game, so that your soul may bless me. So Isaac continued his investigation. How is it that you were so quick to find my son? I just told you minutes ago to go bring me the steak and you're already back so fast? So he responded, because Hashem your God arranged it for me. And Isaac is maybe a little suspicious. Come close, if you please, so I can feel you, my son. Are you indeed my son Esau or not? So Jacob drew close to Isaac, his father, who felt him. And he said, the voice... Is Jacob's voice, but the hands are Esau's hands. He says he kind of hit the nail on the head. It was Esau's hands because it was covered with Esau's. It was disguised as Esau, and it was Jacob's voice because it was really Jacob. And this this line, these two lines, the voice, the voice of Jacob, the hands are Esau's hands. It's not just his take on this issue. This is really all of of Jewish history. You know, Our power is our voice. The voice is the voice of Jacob. But the hands, fighting, violence, aggressiveness, those are not the way of the Jews. But he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy, like the hands of Esau, his brother. So he blessed him. He said, you are indeed my son Esau? And he said, I am. He didn't say, I am Esau. He said, I am. So Isaac said, serve me and let me eat of my son's game and my soul may bless you. So he served him and he ate, he brought him wine and he drank. And Isaac, his father said, come close if you please and kiss me, my son. So he kissed him and he smelled the fragrance of his garment and he blessed him. And he said, the fragrance of my son is like the fragrance of a field which Hashem has blessed. And he launches into this incredible blessing to Jacob and to his descendants. And as we see, like the Sephardim says, these are really all about material bounty. And may God give you of the dew of the heavens and of the fatness of the earth an abundant grain and wine. People will serve you and regimes will prostrate themselves to you. Be a lord to your kinsmen and your mother's sons will prostrate themselves to you. Cursed be they who curse you and blessed be they who bless you. And again, there is no mention of the land of Israel. There is no mention of the blessings of Abraham. There is no mention you'll be as numerous as the stars or the dust. All those blessings, those spiritual blessings are not present over here, giving a lot of credence to the argument that this blessing, which was intended for Esau, does not imply or should not be misread to imply that Isaac believed that Esau was his his continuity, rather that he wanted to give the physical blessings, the material blessings to Esau. And it was when Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and you know what? Who shows up? Esau shows up, and he too made the steaks, and he brings it to his father, and he says, "Let my father rise and eat from his son's game, so you will bless me." So Isaac realizes that we may have a problem. Who are you? And he said, "I am your firstborn son." Esau, Jacob just walked out. He's got the blessing. He's secured the blessing. These are, remember, prophetic blessings. Once it's it's done, it can't be undone. And now Esau walks in and he wants his blessing that he thinks he's about to get. Then Isaac trembled in a very great perplexity and said, Who, where is the one who hunted game, brought it to me, and I partook of all when you had not yet come, and I blessed him. Indeed, he shall remain blessed. After Isaac realized what happened, he came around and he acceded to Rebecca's perspective that indeed Jacob has to have it all, not only the spiritual blessings, but also the physical, material blessings. Isaac hears this. He cries out. He goes ballistic, bless me to my father. And his father said, his father responds, No, your brother came. He was very clever. He stole your blessing. And Esau continues his lamentation. He stole my birthright. Now he's stealing my blessing. Is there nothing left? Isaac finds a leftover blessing for Esau. And he said to him, Behold, of the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and of the dew of the heavens from above. By your sword you shall live, but your brother you shall serve. Yet it shall be... When you are aggrieved, you may cast off his yoke from upon your neck. What does this mean? What Isaac tells Esau is that your brother may have a vulnerability. Yes, your brother you shall serve, but it's possible for you to cast off his yoke from upon your neck. Rashi explains, when the Jewish people disobey the Torah, then you could lay claim to the blessings that he stole from you, and you could unshackle yourself from his burden. Meaning that the blessing that Isaac gave Jacob is contingent on Jacob fulfilling the other role. Jacob got both, the spiritual blessing and the physical blessing. However, the physical blessing, the physical mastery that Jacob's going to have over Esau is only so long as he's fulfilling the destiny of the blessing of Abraham. Once Jacob departs from the ways of Abraham, he departs from Torah, then automatically the earlier blessing that he usurped from Esau becomes nullified and now Esau is in control again. Esau does not take this lightly. He harbors hatred towards Jacob. And he thought, may the days of mourning for my father draw near, when my father passes away, and I will kill my brother Jacob. He is not willing to yield. Once Isaac passes away, once I know that he's not going to be troubled by this, I am going to kill my brother. Jacob now Rebecca was told the words of her older son Esau she finds out prophetically that Esau wants to kill Jacob and she sent and summoned Jacob and she says oh your brother wants to kill you and therefore I want you to get up and flee flee to my brother Laban to Haran remain with him for a little bit maybe your brother's wrath will subside Maybe his anger will dissipate. Go spend some time with my brother, Laban. Maybe marry some of his daughters. Wait for tensions to calm down. And then Rebecca goes and lobbies Isaac. I'm disgusted with my life on the account of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like this, like the daughters of the land, what is life for me? So now... Rebecca really she knows that Esau wants to kill Jacob and it's not a safe place for Jacob to be. So what does she do? She goes over to Isaac to get his agreement to send Jacob away to safety. But what does she tell him? It's kind of stunning. She says, "I don't want Jacob to marry one of the Canaanite daughters. I'll be it'll be terrible for me." This is kind of stunning. We see this just the position of Rebecca having prophecy. She's prophetically discovering that Esau wants to kill Jacob. She doesn't run to Isaac and say, I had a prophecy. I, Jacob's in danger. She doesn't do that. She doesn't flaunt her prophecy. And this is almost like a model, an archetype of, of modesty. Just because someone has prophecy and therefore there's actions maybe they want to affect with that, there's no need to go broadcast to the world I'm a prophet, I'm a prophet. If you're able to achieve the ends of sending Jacob away via other means, there's no need for you to flaunt your spiritual achievement. So Isaac summons Jacob and blesses him. He tells him, don't take a Canaanite woman as a wife. Go to Laban, to your mother's brother and family, and marry one of his daughters. And here he gives him a blessing. And may God bless you and make you fruitful and make you numerous and may you be a congregation of peoples may he grant you the blessing of abraham to you and your offspring that you may possess the land of your sojourns which god gave to abraham so again here we see once isaac is sending jacob away to go travel east to haran to go marry a daughter of laban now he gives him the actual most important blessing the blessing of Abraham, which includes possession of the land of Israel. So Isaac sent Jacob away. He went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bessuel, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Just as a quick note here, very important Rashi in verse 5 here. Uh, the last words bother Rashi. Like Isaac sent Jacob away to Laban, the son of Basuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah. The mother of Jacob and Esau. If there's one thing that we know from this parsha is that Rebecca is the mother of Jacob and Esau. So why is it necessary for us to be told this information again? And Rashi gives a stunning answer. Rashi says, yodea mamelam I do not know what this teaches us. Of course, Rebecca is the mother of Jacob and Esau. Everyone knows that the Torah telling this to us seems redundant, and I don't have an answer for you to explain what the meaning is. Other commentaries offer explanations, but this is maybe a lesson in its own right that it's proper to say, I don't know, that's a very good answer to most questions. The Parsha ends, Esau, he sees that Isaac blessed Jacob, and he goes and marries other women atop his existing women. He goes to Ishmael and marries his daughter on top of his existing wives. He's trying to impress his father. His father doesn't want Jacob marrying Canaanite woman. So he'll also go marry some other woman who's not a Canaanite. Of course, he doesn't divorce his existing Canaanite wives. But he feels like he's done his fair share. Again, more superficiality on Esau's part to kind of show that he's just like Isaac, he's just like Jacob, he's just as spiritual as them. He too will marry a woman that's not a Canaanite. Yes, of course, he still is married to other Canaanite wives, but why are we even talking about that? And thus concludes our Parsha. Next Parsha, we're going to follow Jacob as he flees from his brother and he travels east to find a wife from the daughters of Laban.